this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And this is Fong Wen sitting right next to me. Those Hello. of you on YouTube, will we could pretend that he wasn't here for the podcast, but it's not going to work for, for YouTube. Um, but we're going to do our opening talk anyways, if he were not here, and then we're going to introduce him. Do you think, Sugi, that Nancy Pelosi has seen The Princess Bride? Uh, no idea. Why? Well, it's interesting that you wrote this question for me, because I don't know how to even say the name of this character, because I don't think I've ever seen The Princess oh, Bride. Oh, my God. Witness okay, 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 okay. I'm, I'm about to say stop the podcast. <laughs> And we all go watch The Princess Bride immediately. Wait, that's so wrong. <laughs> I know, I'm like the only person in America who hasn't seen this movie, but I really haven't seen oh it. My Are God. you Gen X? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just lost your Gen X card. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I've been co-hosting a podcast with Winnie for this is it long. Vizzini? Yeah, Vizzini. All right. Vizzini said, never get involved in a land war in Asia. That is the line I wrote for Whitney. As our listeners might imagine, this has particular resonance for me and has <laughs> since the very first time I saw The Princess Bride. I do. I've, I, I, is that where that line came from, or yeah. is that an older line than that than that movie? And that movie is using that line. I think it's from that movie. Oh, I think okay. it's from the movie. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, what do you think of that advice, Sugi? I think that it's good advice. Um, I, for reasons that are again, our listeners can probably imagine, I'm not heavily into the idea of land war in Asia. Um, but somehow Nancy Pelosi did decide to go to Taiwan anyway, and now. China, which of course claims Taiwan, is stepping up its military presence around there, saying they perceive her trip as a sign of U.S. support for Taiwanese independence. You know, so you don't think she should have gone? I, I guess I like, I don't know. I like looked at the news and I was like, why? Why now? What? Why? Just I don't like I'm I support Taiwan. I also just felt like it was I don't know, like, what's the reason to chum the waters? Um I don't know. I guess we'll have different opinions on that because I thought it was good for her to go. And I, I, especially once China started saying she couldn't go, I felt like, look, you know, she's a, she's a citizen of, and she can go to, China, to Taiwan and it's, a, it's an open democracy and she has a right to go. And so I don't think she should be intimidated into not going. I thought she handled the visit very well. I mean, it was, you know, there weren't any other flare ups there. And I thought she got in and got out as, as calmly as you possibly could. I'm not saying I think she should get intimidated out of going or that she doesn't have a right to go. I guess I just sort of was like, whose agenda is it serving for her to go at this particular moment? And it seems to me like that, that it has to do with midterm elections. Maybe. Uh, all right. Well, it, but she also, I will give her credit for, look, I say ma- bad things about Nancy Pelosi all the time on this podcast. I am I am not in favor of her being Speaker of the House, and she's basically too Californian in my view. Well, surely but she I do be. think she did a good... I I I, uh, I I hope actually she will be, but um, uh, I thought she did a great job with this. But we're here because we want to talk about China's sphere of influence. Um, we've talked about it on the on the podcast. We've to talk about China as a as an empire. Um, we've talked about China in relationship to Hong Kong and political developments in Sri Lanka, and we want to take a broader view as we talk about China and its interests abroad, both today and in history, including in Vietnam. And joining us to do that is my friend Fong Wen. And Fong is the author of three novels, The Bronze Drum, 
roundabout in improvisational fiction and The Adventures of Joe Harper, which was a winner of the Prairie Heritage Book Award, as well as two collections of short fiction, Pages from the Textbook of Alternate History, what a good title, and Memory Sickness and Other Stories. He is the Miller Family Endowed Chair in Literature and Writing at the University of Missouri, where he teaches fiction writing. Fong, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Wit, and thanks, Suvi. Uh, okay, so your recently published novel, Bronze Drum, is about two Vietnamese sisters who lead an army of women to a brief victory over the Han Chinese occupiers in their country. Uh, the story begins in ancient times, specifically the year 36. What the sisters do lays the foundation for a modern and independent Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam is on China's southern border, and I think to, that people today often recall that Vietnam was a French colony, but I don't think the popular imagination includes the Han Dynasty's rule there. Could you talk about this period of Chinese occupation in Vietnam? How did it start? When did it end? So the Han occupation of what was then known as the Lac Viet territories and the larger Nan Yue territory, which is, encompasses not just what is modern-day northern Vietnam, but southern China as well, uh, started with the Han Nan Yue War in about 111 BCE. And um, it's uh, that particular period of Chinese dominance ended with the Chung Sisters Revolution. And, um, and this was followed up by another period of Chinese domination of uh, the region, um, which lasted for uh, about eight or 900 years, the 10th century. And um, and then, you know, China has invaded uh, what is the borders of modern day Vietnam too many times to count. But there have been really four periods of domination. And the most recent period ended in the 15th century, uh, in the early 15th century, with the victory of King Le Loi, who um, is famous for a kind of Arthurian legend where he's. Uh, he gets a sword from the water, from the Huan Kiam Lake, which is called the Huan Kiam means the returned sword lake. And so after he fends off the Chinese occupation, he returns the sword to the lake, signifying that hostilities are over and we have to engage in peace with the same fervor with which we engaged once in war. It's complicated to talk about China as an occupying power because, of course, China was occupied, has been occupied, um, including by the Japanese during World War II, and has experienced Western imperialism, you know, particularly from Britain. But as your book points out, China has this history also of being an occupier. There's Vietnam. There's also Tibet, which China invaded in 1959. China fought a territorial war with India, with India in 62. And there are disputes over the border between China and India today. And, and plus, there's China's famed Belt and Road Initiative, which involves investments in infrastructure in Southwest and Central and South Asia, as well as the Middle East and Africa, um, which is arguably a form of economic imperialism, um, and a partial invasion of Vietnam in 79. And then, um, as we've already mentioned, China's continued claims that they actually own Taiwan. Am I, am I leaving anything out? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you're not leaving anything out, but uh, specifically, Kashmir, right, is not only disputed by Pakistan and India, but also China has some less um, immediate claim that they sometimes will assert, right? So um, I think you already kind of referred to that, but not specifically Kashmir, yeah. So in the historical period of the novel, what was China or what or were the, the Han Chinese like as a occupying power? What were their goals? How did they govern? Were they cruel, benevolent? 
Is there anything we can learn about contemporary China with its global aspirations by looking at the Han occupation of Vietnam? So uh, China had a lot of colonies, or sorry, the Han Empire had a lot of colonies at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, what was known as Jiaozi um, was only one of them. And I don't use the term Jiaozi in the novel because Jiaozi is a term that's considered offensive in Vietnam, but that was the, that's what the Chinese term was for that colony. Oh, okay. Um, and Jiaozi literally means like crooked toes or crooked feet. Like they <laughs> thought that the, the, the Vietnamese people had... Uh, crooked feet. That's nice. Um, and uh, so th- that was just one among many colonies, uh, which included Zhu uh, Quan that I mentioned in here, uh, Wu Wei, uh, Zhang Yi. Um, and so uh, they weren't benevolent, certainly, but uh, it got worse and worse under the governor Tao Ding, um, who uh, asserted all these new laws in the region that the Chinese referred to as Jiaozi. And um, they were uh, included forcing aristocratic um, women to marry uh, so that they could keep, better keep track of debts. Um, it included uh, forcing uh, the Viet people to worship uh, Han gods. It included sending young Viet men off to war in distant um, uh, colonies. And um, it included onerous taxes, among other things. All these things are mentioned in the book. Is this also include like that scene where I think this is early enough to not be a spoiler where there's yeah. a, a someone is being punished and then the a Han officer comes up and says, well, that's too light of a punishment. According to the way we do it, you have to do this much worse thing. And, yes. Okay. Yeah. So and, and um, I don't worry too much about spoilers in the book because my, my, you know, I mean, you can find this information on Wikipedia. Okay. Right? But uh, the uh, it's, you know, with historical fiction in general, one of the uh, appealing things to me is when you already know the story and then it's sort of that overinflated balloon effect where you know it's what's going to happen but you're bracing yourself for it and um so uh so i'm actually quite happy if people kind of knew that the broad outline of the story and then we're engaging with this novel um and the particulars in which uh it's told um but yes it includes that um uh, that scene and that notion that the punishments had to be more severe and they had to uh, conform to the Han customs and laws in a very strict way. That was um, the uh, uh, influence of that Han governor, Tozing, and um, that was what Lord Chung was speaking up against when he was uh, beheaded. Again, spoiler. <laughs> You mentioned before the the um, the word, which um, maybe I won't repeat since you you mentioned that it's considered offensive. Um, but like that yeah, seems yeah. like one um, one remnant of Chinese influence in Vietnam. Like, what other aspects of this period of history are felt in Vietnam today? Like, what do you one walks down the street? What 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 of that history is is visible or um, is part of yeah. conversation? Um, so I, I mentioned that uh, China has uh, invaded Vietnam more than you know more times than can be counted, um, and it's interesting because um, Vietnamese and Vietnamese American people disagree on quite a lot. They disagree on the legacy of Ho Chi Minh, for example. They disagree on um, the current state of the Vietnamese government. They disagree on the influence of the United States in Vietnam, 
but they seem to be in agreement in their attitude towards the Chinese, uh, which is distrust of the government um, and uh, the historical relationship between it. And when I say the Chinese, I don't mean the Chinese people, but the Chinese government. And we've spoke a little bit about, um, or you referenced, and this is also in the book, right? Um, or women of the um, aristocracy um, marrying into uh, the Han Chinese people, the Han Chinese occupiers. And I wonder, like, is there a significant population of mixed ancestry? Like, or is that sort of... Um, there, I mean, there is, especially in the North. Um, and, um, you know... Uh, when it comes to, you know, my own family, I did the 23andMe thing, you know, oh, and it turns you? out I'm 1% Chinese. Yeah. yeah so, you know, and, and it was, it's hard. Those things are always 100% accurate. Right. So that's I, what I've heard. I'm sure that figure is good. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, I mean, there were, in some ways, there were no surprises, right? Because it was, you know, basically 50% Vietnamese and 50% uh, Western Europe, right? Being, you know, my mother come, being from Western, or her ancestry coming from Western Europe. But in another way, there was a surprise was the 1% Chinese. When I asked my father about that, he said, oh, yeah, seven generations ago, there was one Chinese. Really? Uh, was, yeah. Wow. So, so they, they, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, it's much more common in the north in Vietnam for there to be um, uh, mixed Chinese and Vietnamese. But um, certainly, you know, as far south as uh, my father was born in Saigon, um, his uh, family was from Namding, which is closer to the, uh, the north or, or in the north. Um, so, uh, you know, in families that live elsewhere, you still get those, um, uh, you know, Chinese ancestors. That's so interesting. Um, I've never done the 23andMe thing. Whitney, have you done that? No, I haven't, actually. Yeah. I did it when it first came out, and it seemed kind of like new and shiny, and now it seems a little bit um, uh, uh, scary. Yes. Um, Anyway, so some of what we're talking about is um, we were talking about these prominent women in history who are prominent, um, you know, who are the protagonists of your novel. And and in your novel, you describe Vietnam as tribal, communal, matriarchal. And that's in contrast to the Han Chinese, who are very patriarchal. And so they're they're sort of continually underestimating the sisters at the center of your novel generally and and are also kind of fascinated by them. They're like, oh, we, we kind of don't get this. Um, and they're furious at their attempts to gain power. And, and our news peg for this episode um, is Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and, and the kind of general freak out that this seemed to set off in the Chinese government. And, you know, yeah, China thinks that Taiwan is part of China and they resent Pelosi's claims that it, that it isn't. But I also wonder um, how much of their reaction or how much of the reaction just kind of stems from the fact that Pelosi is a powerful woman who's challenging them, challenging them very publicly like the sisters in your novel. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think that that um, I would take the uh, Chinese government's statement that it was, you know, the highest uh, a, a U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years as being the more significant fact about her visit. And yet the emotional core that is touched certainly could originate from um, their sense of, you know, Confucian values in the sense that the family and structure and the, and the hierarchy of the family uh, places women at a lower position in society. Uh, but that would be speculation um, on my part. Um, you know, as far as the uh, 
Lac Viet people and the Chung sisters um, specifically, uh, the prevailing theory is, well, what is known is that they rejected Confucianism and uh, fought against Confucianism. Uh, they did not have a traditional family structure. Uh, what was in its place is unknown, and yet the prevailing theory is that it was matrilineal and that um, you had communities uh, that took care of children as opposed to just the individual families, um, the way that it's structured um, in the modern world. I mean, Confucianism in the novels, and obviously in real life, it seems like, seems to function in the way that like conservative evangelical Christianity functions in the in the states. Is it possible to draw and you know, like it's a conser- it seems like it's a conservative force that's like we want to stick with a patriarchal order, rule bound, yeah. trust the government. You know? Well, yeah, I like to think that the role of Confucianism is a more subtle in the book only because um, you know Tisak, who's the tutor, is taking Chongyi to task at one point for assuming Confucianism equals um, you know regressive. Okay. Uh, values and he suggests that um, what Confucian what Confucius did was focus on virtue and government and at a time of great corruption and uh, that he was uh, taking what was already there in society which is this traditional family structure and codifying it um, but he was doing that towards a very different end it was not intended to uh, subjugate women necessarily, uh, but for many people that was the effect. Or yeah. it would be the first time that somebody took religious ideas and then used them for a different purpose than who the originator right. of the religion wanted them to be used. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I'm just saying, like, I see a lot of parallels with the way that the Chinese government acts now and has acted, you know, like like the, the, the military exercises, right, that happened right mm-hmm. after Pelosi went to Taiwan. It's like a show of force. This is what we're how we're going to we're going to show power when we're yeah. upset. We're not going to use soft power. We're not going to try to use cultural power. We're going to use power power. Right. And we're yeah. going to use economic power. Both of those things are happening in the novel. All right. So while we're on the subject, let's talk about the sisters at the center of the novel, uh, Chung Chak and Chung Yi. Um, they were real historical figures, as you said. Their story is fabulous and amazing. Even though you said I could have looked it up on Wikipedia, I had not heard right. it of it before <laughs> I read this book. I think two years ago, um, and uh, while you were working on it, you're Vietnamese American. Was this a common story in your family growing up, or did you learn it later in life? Can you give our listeners an outline of yeah. who these sisters are? So um, it was a story that I heard when I was young. Um, and it was part of a kind of a canon of stories that I would hear um, with great frequency growing up. And the, that canon of stories wasn't all Vietnamese legends and, and myths and tales. Uh, there was, for example, one of the more uh, popular ones in our household was the story of Monkey King or Journey to the West, which is now you know more widely known. And, you know, we would dress up as Monkey King and uh, Pigsy and other, you know, uh, characters from the book. Um, and, and then there were, you know, Western folk tales like my father really loved the story of Puss in Boots. And, uh, <laughs> and he read the Fable de la Fontaine. And um, so it was just a part of a, a kind of a personal or family canon of stories. And um, so uh, it reminded me of the second part of the question. Well, um, you know, I just 
give us a general outline. Uh, we've talked a lot about the sisters, but tell us, you know, who they were, what they did. Yeah, yeah. You know, for, for listeners who might not be familiar with them. Yeah, so um, this is during the Bronze Age uh, in Vietnam, or what, what, what would later become Vietnam. And uh, the Chung Trok and Chung Nhi were the two daughters of Lord Chung, who was the one who had spoken up against the governor, Tao Ding, who was imposing all of these harsh new laws, uh, penalizing uh, the people for very minor infractions and so on. And um, so he was beheaded. And uh, the governor thought that it would end there, but he didn't account for these two women who were raised with military strategy and martial arts and, uh, most importantly, with the spirit of uh, revolution and uh, they raised an army of 80,000 women. Um, they fought off the Han Chinese occupation and ruled as kings in Vietnam for almost three years. Or sorry, I keep saying Vietnam, but it's the Lac Viet Territory uh, for almost three years before China sent uh, its fiercest general, Ma Yuan, um, down with a massive army and uh, wound up uh, quelling the rebellion and driving the Chung sisters to uh, the edge of a cliff where, according to the historical Chinese version, they were caught and beheaded. And according to the um, mythic Vietnamese version, they jumped off kind of Thelma and Louise style, taking their own lives in their own hands and to the Red River. And um, uh, so as, uh, as you know, the uh, version that I went with in terms of the ending is the version of the uh, mythic Vietnamese version because um, it's a lot more compelling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. So there's a lot of explicit feminism in the way that the sisters act um and the novels suggest that this is part of vietnamese culture we talked a little bit about matriarchy um i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that tradition um the recruitment of this army of women for example and then read to us a passage from the book when the marriage of these sisters is discussed sure um so uh one of the things that really um drew me into the story um from a young age, but also as I re-entered it in order to write about it uh, some five years ago, is the fact that um, we tend to think of uh, human progress proceeding along a, a kind of a tidy, linear um, fashion that is primarily located within the West. And so when we look at, for example, um, the role of women, the treatment of women throughout history, we kind of tell a story in which there's sort of incremental um, advances and progress located primarily within the West. And, you know, and yet in the United States, we have yet to have a, fe have a female head of state. And um, in you know, 2000 years ago, in uh, what was is, is now northern Vietnam, they had um, women kings. Uh, women generals, um, and a matrilineal, matriarchal society, as far as we uh, our best understanding. And so um, it sort of upsets that neat 
narrative about uh, the progress of our ideals. And um, so here is the section in question. For the Feast of the Golden Turtle, Lord Chung and Lady Mantian hosted the lords and ladies of Chuzian, Kuuchan, Nyat Nam, and Hopfo at the palace. The dining hall was lit by beeswax candles, and all the lords and ladies sat on the floor holding their bowls to their lips to taste of the ox broth. Only when the last bowl was emptied and the wine poured did the talk begin. Your daughters are grown now, and beautiful beyond any parent's fondest hope, the lady of Nyat Nam said. Yes, grown, said the lord of Nyat Nam. So when will they marry? My daughters are not made to marry, said Lady Manthien. Marriage is an economic arrangement for the benefit of the Han. What will they do? They will do as our mothers did and take whatever lover will bring them joy and make them the best children to raise in their homes. To raise children alone, asked the lord of Nyatnam. Maybe, said Lady Manthian. What does a husband do but let himself be taken care of? The lord of Nyatnam scoffed. But who will protect them? Lady Manthian raised an eyebrow. You speak like a Confucian. The lord of Nyatnam, his legs crossed, his hands planted on his thighs, raised his chin as though he had just awoken. Maybe I am a Confucian then. I am just thinking about what is best for your daughters. It is my intuition that even though our society has allowed women to choose mates at their own will, that what women secretly want is a husband and head of household. Maybe so, maybe not, said Lady Manthian. There's only one way to know. Let's ask. The Lord of Nyatnam looked amused by the challenge. If we are going to ask your daughter such a question, it is not enough that they give an answer. They must be persuasive. You and I have already shown our bias, said Lady Manthian, then gestured across the table to a thin, elderly woman whose bowl of wine shook in her arthritic hands. Why don't we enlist the Lady of Kuuchan as an impartial judge? The Lord of Nyatnam's lips pinched into a straight line, failing to conceal his amusement. If we have a lady judge, we must also enlist a lord. The Lord of Hopfall will serve as a judge. So Chong Yi and Chong Chok were called in. Chong Chok stood with her arms rigid at her sides like a soldier, as Chong Yi crossed her arms and scanned the room with a sour expression. Both women wore alzai, the flowing silk gowns embroidered with floral patterns, Chong Yi draped in the orange of sunrise and Chong Chok in the dark blue of twilight. When the sisters learned of the terms of the contest, they looked at each other for some invisible cue as to who should make the first attempt, and it was Chung Chok who finally spoke. A woman wants the same things a man wants, she said, as though repeating instructions from a manual. Glory in battle, comfort in bed, and the freedom to choose one's own fate. What of marriage? asked the lord of Nyatnam. Marriage is an institution forced upon us by the Han. It is the legacy of Confucianism and should be abolished, she said. But she felt the cold draft of disapproval wafting from the judges and added, though marriage is fine for your generation, which has had to accept the yoke of Confucianism, and your own marriages are, I'm sure, sacred things. As she spoke, everyone in the room could see her confidence waver. <laughs> Thank you. I you couldn't even imagine... Uh... I was trying, when I was reading this passage, I was trying to imagine an American woman saying to her, anybody in public, like, marriage is no good. I don't want it. It's, right. it's, 
it's a tool of the of the right or something like that. I mean, I guess there are women who do say that, but it's, you know, you just realize like how deeply embedded those ideas yeah. are in, in cultures and for them to reject that idea in the novel is startling and interesting. Yeah. And it's really contested territory at this time because they've already had 100 years of Han rule, right? And so they have ancestors that maybe are in, you know, recent enough memory who have not had to live under that system, but it's still imposed upon them. You know? Yeah. Um, and then later in the book, you know, in a, in a way that this sort of this conversation prefigures, um, the Chung sister's father tries to s- arrange for uh, Chung Chuck to marry a Han commander. She objects, wants to marry a scholar instead. A messenger sent by her father to the Han governor shares this news and says, hey, our, you know, we've, we've raised our tax projections by 12 percent. And the governor, as the Han constantly do in this book, you know, says, guess what? You got to raise your taxes even more, you know, <laughs> right? And I thought about it made me think about China's the way China uses economic power in this novel. And today, you know, as an international creditor, China has put itself in a good position by stepping in when other countries' fortunes have tanked. And we've talked about this before. But China, for instance, has control of a significant port in Sri Lanka, you know, that it that it's helped fund when when the country couldn't pay its debts. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, coercion and money as a part of imperialism? Yeah, I can speak to it in the specific case of the the Chung sister story, which is that um, that was a, a significant part of the reason for the the betrayal of the Viet Minh and the leaders and lords of the Lac Viet territories against the Chung sisters is because they thought they would fare better economically under the Han. They they were wrong, mm. but um, be, because they felt that uh, the Chung sisters were favoring uh, certain regions over others. And so there was that kind of infighting. And there's also, of course, the sense of that they were entitled to power as men. Um, and so those things led to the, um, the betrayal of the Chung sisters and ultimately their downfall. You know, this story is like a blockbuster movie, basically, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, except that if, you know, the, the Chung, Chung sister's enemy is the Chinese, and no studio oh, and then will, will no, touch right, so is going to touch You're this. never going to get to have it made. Oh, that's so sad. Uh, you know, I mean, they're going to lose <laughs> one and a half billion potential viewers. Okay, so. good example of Chinese economic <laughs> imperialism. That's a, there, there's, a, there's a cultural imperialism that's happening there that even affects Hollywood, I think. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I uh, really enjoyed in writing the book is actually the character of Ma Yuan, who is the enemy and he's the general who overwhelms them. But he's um, he's not just uh, villainous. He has uh, his uh, his own prerogatives, his own priorities. And I, I worried a little bit in writing this that the uh, because China, the Chinese or the Han Chinese or the enemy of the Chung sisters, that they would seem to be the enemy of the author. And the, the, of course, um, that's, uh, you know, I wanted to undercut that with a more subtle portrayal, uh, a portrayal of um, uh, a character. And that character in this book, I think, is the historical, uh, probably the most famous character today, Ma Yuan, uh, who is beloved by the Chinese. Yeah, I was curious to ask you about this because I just was thinking, you know, you were writing this, um, you started writing this, you said, I think, five years ago? Yes. Um, or so- six years ago, during 2016. Yeah. Sure. And then, um, right, you know, 2016, um, around like maybe a year before we started this podcast and then 
um, you know, for so many reasons, we're, I feel like, in an, in an era of, like, intense Sinophobia and yeah, yeah. anti-Asian sentiment. And I think we, one of the things I hugely appreciate about this book um, is that it's about, I mean, it's about political conflict and history that is between Asian peoples. Like, there isn't, yeah. like, Asian peoples are at the center of this. At the same time, you are, you know, of course, writing in English, and you're writing um, for an audience that is, like, coming from this environment of Sinophobia, Xenophobia. And I just remember, yeah. like, as a young magazine journalist in D.C., like, I remember, I mean, seeing things that were just sort of like these portrayals of the Chinese, right? And like, I'm putting air yeah. quotes around that for our listeners that like, kind of these like, faceless, terrifying masses of with military power, like there's all this kind of like, um, yeah. Orientalism in, in that also. Right. And so like, one of the great things about that, about the general is the way that um, he, I mean, he's obviously, I mean, he's um, one of the Han Chinese, but also like works against a portrayal like that. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, um, I don't know, like if yeah. your thoughts about writing in this way changed as as the political environment changed during your writing. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in some ways, um, my uh, starting to write this in 2016 was not a coincidence. It was in some ways a response to um, the awful results of the 2016 election and the fact that um, uh, a highly competent woman leader was um, uh, was not chosen in favor of a highly incompetent male leader, and um, and one of the things the refrains on the part of the uh, Republicans was that um, she would have been weak on national defense, and of course you know the the, the she she wouldn't have been and. Um, and, and the fact that she is a woman doesn't necessarily imply that. And the story of the Chung sisters, I think, puts that myth to rest. And so the showing um, these leaders who um, were also generals, uh, they weren't just political leaders, they were military leaders as well. Um, uh, I felt very important at that time. As far as the shifting um, attitudes and um, phobia, of the influence of the Chinese, that's something that I've felt like has been there all along. It's just a little bit more um, public and a little people are a little bit less fearful to express those uh, those points of view. But um, the anti-Chinese-ness is something that um, has been with us, um, you know, if we're, at least since the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So, um, and uh, I can remember, uh, you know, in my childhood that a lot of representations which were very regressive and very um, harmful uh, of the Chinese. And so um, I don't think it's a new thing, but it, suddenly people feeling bold enough to express uh, hatred towards a people or prejudice towards a people is something that um, is galvanizing if you're writing a story such as this one, not to play into that kind of representation. Yeah, and yeah. I think like, sorry, oh, Whitney, go, go ahead. ahead. I just wanna say, you know, I think it's, we've, we've talked about both sides of this issue. I, I do think it's important when, I mean, I'm critical of China's government and I don't like their human rights issues with the Uyghurs and there's lots yeah. of things that they're doing that I'm not a fan of, but that's not this, that's not then supporting demagoguery about Asian identity that goes on yeah. on the right here. And of course, we oppose that as well. No, yeah, I mean, I think that um, this is one of the things I, 
admire the book, about the book because I think like, you know, you have to uh, like, how is it possible to kind of, and of course it is like to advance like sophisticated critique of imperialism historically and at present um, while also kind of not playing into the hands of those who would um, yeah. distort that critique I, to their own ends. I mean, Hajin we had on the show, he's very critical of the, you know, we yeah, talked yeah. about that, his novel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, seeking more and more subtlety in representation and in, um, in, in, in narrative is a starting point, right? Because I think the, the, the problems of Orientalism, right, arise from a kind of, you know, good Asian, bad Asian kind of um, uh, duality, which we know is false, right? Um, and uh, that's what permits this kind of dehumanization and, and, and so on. So I think just seeking out subtlety and representation is, uh, is very key, or, or at least that's... Um, the limit of my power as an author, right? And to, to affect anything like this is seeking that kind of subtlety. Do you think that it's reasonable to say, and I'm a little bit guessing here that, um, like in recent years, it seemed like a lot of literature in English with Vietnamese characters centered an American perspective, featured American characters, featured specifically white American characters was centered around the war. And then in recent years, we've seen more and more books kind of coming to the fore that are not placing that at the center that are that are surfacing other kinds of history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it still feels very new. I mean, I, I don't know what the, the very first book to center the Vietnamese experiences. You know, I know that uh, Bao Ning's The Sorrows of War is one that people point to. That's, of course, that's literally from the Vietnamese perspective written by a Vietnamese author. Um, but um, in American literature as well, we've begun to see that uh, at the very least with the uh, work of Viet Thanh Nguyen and, um, uh, and so on. But uh, I think the, uh, those representations of the Vietnam War centering a uh, white perspective and specifically the combat, the, the soldier's perspective, has is, is, is been so entrenched that that still is our default, right? It's still kind of the default way that we think about um, the American War in Vietnam. All right, so here's where we put you on the spot. You're a novelist, not a political commentator, as you informed us when we asked you to do this show. Um, but the premise of our show is that everything in the news has already been written about. So based on your research into the ways that the Chung sisters and the Vietnamese resisted Han occupation in the past, what advice would you give to the people of Taiwan as they try to remain independent? Um, well, it's tough to give advice without uh, appearing to condescend, right? And so I'll try to think about um, ways that uh, the Taiwanese people and the Taiwan government can benefit from the example of the Chung sisters. And I think where the Chung sisters perhaps went wrong is not shoring up their alliances as well during a time of peace. So, um, you know, there was a com certain complacency, sure, but there was also um, a lack of attention to uh, all of the various constituencies that would have helped them ultimately maintain their kingdom and independence from the Han Chinese. So that's not to say that I have any specific um, 
you know, advice for, you know, the Taiwanese, but just looking at the Chung sisters' example, um, that's maybe one of the lessons of their story. That's excellent. That's a really good answer. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, in general, we appreciate you, uh, your great answers during this conversation and for talking to us about the Bronze Drum, and we encourage listeners to go pick a copy of the book up. It's out right now. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Vaughn. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Sugi and I want to take a moment to mention the awful attack on Salman Rushdie recently and to say that he is in our thoughts. He is, in the spirit of this podcast, an unashamedly and brilliantly political writer. I've loved and been influenced by his work. I also had the good fortune to meet him at the Unbound Book Festival in Columbia, Missouri, where he gave the keynote address. He is generous and kind, and, as we've always known, courageous. We're thinking about him this week, and we'll be following the news about his attack. We want to shout out some listeners. First is Margaret Monteith, a writer with publications in Bomb Magazine and Fugue Journal. And the second is Lucy Sweetman, editor of the book Exploring Consensual Leadership in Higher Education from Bloomsbury. Both of them were interested in our episode about Boris Johnson's demise featuring Margot Livesey. Lucy wrote, I've only listened to the introduction and I'm already squirming as our American literary cousins look on our country and ask all the right questions. Thank you, Lucy and Margaret. For your interest in the episode, you can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, don't give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or tweet about us and we'll talk about you here. You can also listen, find previous episodes and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we've referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod, on Twitter at FNFTalk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find videos of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website, fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading.